Welcome to Nefarious New York. I'm Allison. And I'm Meredith. Oh, yes, I and, am. Oh, yes, you is. What's going on? Oh, not much. Just work. And I've been watching a lot of Netflix documentaries still. And mm-hmm. they're pretty amazing. So I hear that you are, what, you watched the first episode of Night Stalker? Yeah, I only got the first episode done. I was watching it and then uh, the kids kept coming in and out and I thought possibly not appropriate. So well, I put it's, something else on. The guy's fucking sick. That's all I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Um, just yeah, keep watching. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you know the basic story, but I still want to watch right. it. And then you watched Ripper? I did not finish that one either. It's hard for me to get through a whole one because I can't just sit. Like, I need just like those one, one episode, hour and a half documentaries. I can't yeah. do these I can't, limited series ones. I can't. I can't contain myself. I have to keep watching. But the, the crazy part, and I don't know if you're up to it yet, is how the women in that era I don't understand so the police department and everyone's basically saying to them listen you can't go out past a certain time at night and the women turned it into this like women's lib movement we have the right to be out past dark without having the fear that we're going to be harmed and it's like it's not about taking away your rights you idiots it's about trying to save your life well I feel like that comes into play today with people thinking that wearing a mask and all that stuff is like an impingement on their freedom right or something it's like shut up but anyway i am ready for the next case okay so i do want to say we haven't done an episode in a while we did record one and hated it hated it um so we let that go we're definitely going to try to be more regular Really? Would you like regular movements? Oh, God. Going forward. But, you know, it's not like we're making our millions. So it's not yet. Mm. Not yet. This case. And we weren't crazy about the last one either. I wasn't. And and I don't mean to. I mean, listen, a murder is a murder. Right. And and they're all horrible and they're all important in some way. But I just felt like it wasn't. Our best. So I no. agree with you. So we just bagged it. And um, I think you're going to like this one tonight. Okay. I always say tonight. You it's always the say tonight. Of the day. Yes. But anyway, I think you're going to like this one. I looked for one with a bit more to it. So, so as usual, right, you're going to start us off because this is some background. So I do have a visitor with us today in the mm. studio. Her name is Bela, <laughs> and she's going to sit with me. And give me little doggy kisses while we do the case. If that's okay with everybody. Well, they don't really have a say, so go ahead. All right, so we're going to get started. Stanford White was born on November 9th, 1853 in New York City. He started working as an apprentice architect at the age of 18, and he was an apprentice for six years. And we're going back here now. So in 1878, he went to Europe to study their architecture. And when he came back from New York City, he formed McKinn, Mead, and White architect firm. And in 1884, Stanford married Bessie Springs Smith. And she was a 22-year-old from Long Island. 
They had a son, Lawrence Grant White, in 1887. Stanford designed tons of New York City commercial properties, and he also designed many Long Island mansions and some projects as far as Boston and Rhode Island. He designed all all view and four chimneys in New Rochelle, our hometown. Yes. Stanford was known to many, including his business partners, as having an interest in young girls and also being bisexual. Okay. In 1887, so this is the year that his son was born, you mentioned, Mm -hmm. Stanford and some others started the Sewer Club, which was kind of like a a place for drinking and they're like, I'm, I'm picturing it almost like, like a sex club or something. Okay. I guess. Um, he also had an apartment in New York city and one of the rooms in the apartment, this is just one of the famous rooms was painted green and it had a red velvet swing suspended from the ceiling. And it was later revealed that he would kind of use this room to seduce underage girls. Like he'd get them on the swing and uh, I don't know. And do his thing. <laughs> so, but, but he would put them on the swing and then ha- I don't know the significance of this and it comes up a bunch. Have them swing really high like he would get them going almost to the ceiling and there was this silk umbrella that was suspended up there and they would the game was kind of like kick a hole through the umbrella and he had like an endless supply of these umbrellas. I don't know. I don't know if there's some significance that you're going to see in that but I don't get it. Anyway. Okay. Well, let's see. You know, I'm like a a wannabe uh, psychiatrist. So uh, let's see. Right. So I'm like, maybe you can figure out why this was something that he did. Um, Anyway, one of the young girls he seduced was named Evelyn Nesbitt. Okay. So Florence Evelyn Nesbitt was born on Christmas Day, 1884 in Pennsylvania. She went by Evelyn. So that is what I guess we're going to be calling her in this episode. As a baby, hundreds of people came to her small family cottage to see her beauty. I guess she was pretty. (laughs) At five years old, she sang at a memorial service at her family church, and people could not believe how beautiful she was. When she was 11, her father died unexpectedly, and after this, the family house was foreclosed on and all of their belongings were auctioned off. So then Evelyn and her brother lived with friends and relatives when their mother couldn't afford them. And this went on for years. At around 13, she was locally discovered by a photographer for her beauty. And artists wanted to draw and paint her and photographers wanted to take her picture. I'm dying to see this picture of this girl, which I haven't seen yet. At 15, she moved to New York City with her mother. So there she was an artist model, so she would sit and pose, and she became a chorus girl and an actress. She was targeted by Stanford when she was just 16 and he was 46. Ew. Okay. Yeah. Gross. He invited her to luncheons at his apartment and out, and he kind of began to put himself forward as like a father figure, so she started to trust him in that way. Mm. While at his luncheons, he would have her swing on that large red velvet swing we mentioned earlier. And same, he would swing her until she was able to pierce the silk of that umbrella. He bought her a bunch of toys and gifts. Because remember, even though she's 16, 
she probably didn't have a lot of the toys and, and stuff because they were poor. Right. So she would pass by like an FAO Schwartz and see something and he would, you know, get it for her. Okay. Eventually, he moved Evelyn and her mother into a nicer place to live. And this is, you know, pretty quickly. About two months after she met him, he convinced her mother to go to Pennsylvania, to go back to Pennsylvania and visit family while he kept an eye on Evelyn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mom went for it. Okay. One night, he had her over for dinner, Evelyn, and she either drank too much or was drugged. Either way, she woke up and was only in pink undergarments or she was naked. I've seen it written both ways. And Stanford was naked next to her. She screamed. She was very afraid. She was crying. And he said to her, don't cry, kittens. You belong to me now. Hmm. So he convinced her never to tell anyone because her reputation would be ruined. And Evelyn later said of this night, and this is quotes from her, he took me into another room. That room was a bedroom. On a small table stood a bottle of champagne and one glass. Mr. White poured out just one glass for me, and I paid no attention to it. Then he asked me why I was not drinking my champagne, and I said I did not like it. It tasted bitter. But he persuaded me to drink it, and I did. A few moments after I had drank it, there began a pounding and thumping in my ears, and the room got all black. When I came to myself, I was greatly frightened, and I started to scream. She also described seeing blood on her thigh, so she realized what had happened. Right. She said the next day... And she's talking about Stanford. Mm -hmm. He made me swear that I would never tell my mother about it. He said there was no use talking and the greatest thing in this world was not getting found out. He said it was all right that there was nothing so nice as young girls and nothing so loathsome as fat ones. You must mm. never get fat. Okay. So that's that experience. Now she's a baby at this point. Evelyn and Stanford had an affair for nearly a year. So... Basically, the kind of stuff, that, that same kind of thing. Obviously, I don't think he drugged her anymore, but right. the swing and the No, the but whole... he manipulated her. and Right. So they were together for about a year. On her 17th birthday, he gave her a pearl necklace, three diamond rings, and a set of white fox furs. Evelyn later said that they would have wild sex on one of the fashionable tiger or lion rugs. Then he would put her on the velvet swing and watch her swing until she hit the silk umbrella. I mean, it, you, can't, you can't explain people who are sick in the head. I mean, he's, it's obviously some kind of fetish for him, and I don't know. Mm, interesting. But uh, someone else is going to enter the picture, so you... So meanwhile, Harry Thaw, posing as a Mr. Monroe, becomes sort of a secret admirer of Evelyn, sending her gifts after her stage performances. And he was born February 12, 1871. So around the time of his pursuit of Evelyn, he was around 30 years old and pursuing a 17-year-old. Well, still kind of gross, not as gross as the other one, right? Mm -hmm. So his family was very wealthy from coal and railroad money. And Harry continued pursuing Evelyn as Mr. Monroe and very theatrically revealed himself to be the very wealthy 
Harry Kay thaw during a lunch date. So around this time and towards the official end of her relationship with Stanford, Evelyn met John Barrymore, the actor. I know who that is. That is the grandfather of Drew Barrymore, isn't it? He proposed marriage twice and Evelyn declined. And Stanford didn't like this, obviously. So she gets sent to a girls' school in New Jersey. So I was just going to say, he sends her or the mother sends her. Um, I'm sure her mother was easily convinced by Stanford that this was the right thing to do. So while at school in 1903, Evelyn needed an appendectomy. And Harry Thaw enters the picture again and brought in a doctor to perform the operation. As part of her recovery, he took Evelyn and her mother on a trip to Europe. While they were in Europe, Harry was on cocaine and morphine. And one night after her mother had returned to New York City, while Evelyn was asleep in her room, she was awakened by a bug-eyed, seething and startlingly naked Harry in a frenzy. He pulled back her covers and slashed Evelyn with a riding crop. And she was bleeding and he tore off her nightgown and raped her. He was said to have been screaming about Stanford White the whole time. So during this time, and for at least two years, Thaw proposed to Evelyn many times, and she refused. And she stated that she refused because of her reputation, because of her past relationship with Stanford. She said that it would tarnish his reputation and his family's reputation. And it's kind of fucked up in these days, too, because, you know, reputations and family with money compared to people who have no money, they don't really have a say. Like, no one's going to ever look at these wealthy guys. They're always going to look at the people who have no money and think that they're at fault. Right. Right. And she was so young, but that was her reasoning. I would think that he, him raping her might be a reason not to marry him, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, she's also not... You know, her two experiences have been like that. Right, right. right? So at this point, she has told Harry about what happened with Stanford. So that's why he's, he's... He starts to get kind of obsessed with Stanford in his... Um, she can't marry him because of that. So he's naturally holding it against Stanford. Uh, uh, I would think so, yeah. <laughs> when Evelyn returned to New York City, Stanford contacted her. And now his main reason was to, to deter her from seeing Harry. So Stanford now has gotten wind of where she's been with right. Harry. So he keeps telling her that he's a morphine and cocaine addict and he even took her to see a lawyer to protect her from Harry. The okay. lawyer told Very him, ironic, huh? Right. Well, this lawyer is later describes it as like a shyster. So he's not, not a very ethical lawyer. Or he's not known as being an ethical lawyer. Okay. So anyway, this lawyer told Evelyn that she had to stop seeing Harry, that he was a very bad man, and that he took her against her will. At this point, Evelyn's a minor, right? We said, and Harry's about 30 years old. So they're trying to paint him in a poor light because he took advantage of a 17-year-old. Right, which he did the same thing anyway. <laughs> Stanford and the lawyer made Evelyn give them love letters that Harry had written her so that they would have some proof mm -hmm. against him. 
Of course, now, Evelyn goes back and tells Harry about all of this. Harry now goes and consults with his own lawyer, and he told Evelyn that it all seemed crooked. That's the (laughs) word he used. Um, Which is so ironic to me, because they're both doing the same thing to her. They're both disgusting. Yeah. So he's not happy that she had gone with Stanford to the lawyer, and even that she had any contact with him anymore. Right. Um, so Evelyn did promise Harry that she would not have contact with Stanford. And if Stanford tried to contact her, she would tell Harry. So this is what happened on all future encounters. Um, anytime Stanford approached her or anything, she would tell Harry. Mm. And she said that Harry always got like really agitated and was biting his nails and was just kind of obsessed with knowing more about Stanford. And he constantly wanted her to repeat that night, that first night that they were together and she was drugged. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of getting obsessed, completely obsessed with it. Right. On April 4th, 1905, Evelyn did marry Harry and they had a son, Russell. I'm like, so she marries the guy that rapes her. Right. Okay. <laughs> so throughout their marriage... Harry would wake up in the middle of the night crying hysterically and asking to hear details about Stanford's rape of his wife. And then Harry tried to commit suicide at least twice. This guy's nuts. Yeah, he's he's off his rocker. I mean, there's a little more of a backstory that Stanford was kind of blacklisting him from getting into clubs in New York City. So Harry kind of had a little animosity towards Stanford anyway. Yeah, but I, I, are we all forgetting? Like, he raped her, but okay. Anyway, well, they I'm both Jan- did. Yeah. On January 23rd, 1907, Harry and Evelyn went to the theater. Stanford was there as well, and at one point during the performance, Harry stood up, walked over to Stanford, and shot him, <laughs> killing him. He shot him twice in the head and once in the shoulder. And after he shot him, Harry announced to the terrified crowd, I did it because he ruined my wife. He had it coming to him. He took advantage of the girl and then deserted her. So now the trial starts. So I'll let you talk about that. The trial starts in 1907. And the main witness that everyone, you know, wants to hear from is Evelyn. So she does, she didn't want to testify. She was like horrified of having to reveal all of this personal stuff. Right. She did get up there and she basically told a bit more detailed of a story, but basically what we've covered so far. And it's, it's reported that the people in the crowd or in the courtroom were crying. I guess, you know, that stuff is extremely shocking, whereas now you'd need like a bit more to get under people's skin. Right. And I don't know what was happening during that time, you know, if, if things were similar um, as, as to way they, the way they are now, but yeah, I mean, I still, the whole thing would be shocking now, but it probably even more so back then. On April 11th, 1907, there was a mistrial. So there was a hung jury. Uh, I think it was like seven to convict him and five to say he was insane. Mm. In January, 1908, there was a second trial and you know, again, Evelyn has to testify and all of that. And during the trial, Harry's doctor said this of his mental state. 
He said, I observed that Harry K. Thaw exhibited a peculiar facial expression, a glaring of the eyes, a restlessness of the eyes, a suspicious viewing of the surroundings and me, watching every movement of me. I observed a nervous agitation and restlessness, such as comes from a severe brainstorm. Hmm. So this is significant in that this, I guess, is the first time that anyone is diagnosed as having a brainstorm. Okay. Which is negative here, but when we talk about brainstorming, it's to come up with ideas and be positive and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. right? On February 3rd, First, 1908, the jury finds Harry not guilty by reason of insanity. So he's sent to Matawan Asylum for the Criminally Insane in Fishkill, New York. So in 1915, Evelyn divorces Harry. And in 1917, Harry is temporarily released. And when he's released, he kidnaps a 19-year-old boy and severely whips him. Harry is then sent to an insane asylum in in Pennsylvania, and he's released in 1924, and he died in 1947 in Florida. Meanwhile, Evelyn ended up losing her money in bad investments, and in her later years, she was a sculptor in L.A., and she died of natural causes in 1967. Now, this part is for you. The ghost of Evelyn is said to haunt the mansion that Evelyn and Harry vacationed in after they were married in Pennsylvania. Mm. And it was built by Harry's family, the Thaws. Okay. Some of the stories that support the ghost of Evelyn is that, and this is one story, motorists picking up a young woman in a long white dress. In tears, she asked to be driven to Elmhurst. That's the name of the mansion. But when they neared the entrance gate, they discovered their passenger had unexplainably disappeared. Hmm. It's also said that she's been seen wandering the halls and appears in mirror reflections. Also, lights flicker on and off and doors and windows swing shut by themselves. Hmm. Very, very cool. So, I mean, I, I don't, I've got a lot of problems with this. I don't, so I know she divorces him, but I don't, she married the guy who raped her. Where is her mother? You know, and, and but that's what happens in, in a lot of these. Like when even when you see in movies and history, money is a very, very weird thing. And sometimes when people don't have money, they, they're not always thinking clearly and they're not thinking straight. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that they didn't have money. And you get manipulated by people who have money. True. And so she probably just, I, not just, she, she sat back and allowed it to happen. But I feel like this is like almost, um, remember we were talking about the documentaries in the episode that we didn't use? And we were talking about that abducted in plain sight. I feel like this is like, yes. like almost like that. Yes, Like where she got manipulated into thinking these things were best for her daughter. Like who leaves their daughter who's 17 with some guy in Europe and you come back to the city? They do do because they're manipulated. So they trust. And once that trust is gained, it's like free game for them. The weird part to me in both of these stories is that 
she continued a relationship with both of them. I think Stanford manipulated her in that she was already ruined. Right. And now she had to stick with him because otherwise, if it came out, then she would, you know, have no options. And you know the way that it works and the way that it worked back then and how people viewed women. So they would somehow find it to be her fault. Right. And so her reputation is on the line, but his is not. That's the crazy part about all of this. And it didn't happen once. It happened twice. But and the other ironic thing to me, too, is that both men perceive the other one as the enemy. Right. Right. Yep. And they both did basically the same thing. You know, you you go, okay, where was the mother? How did she allow this to happen? And, And it's funny how we automatically point to those people. Well, these guys were two adults. And they should have known better. Two predators. Predators. Basically, yeah. No, not basically. They were. So that was the Evelyn Nesbitt case. All right. Well, nuts. Well, sing us out and we'll be back in a few weeks. Nefarious New York. <laughs> <laughs>